Um, Dr. Ken Hoskins is the director of the UIC Familial Breast Cancer Program. Um, he focuses on the assessment of breast cancer risk, utilizing both population studies and molecular approaches he has developed strategies to reduce breast cancer mortality by better identifying high-risk individuals. Dr. Hoskins also examines the disparity in breast cancer mortality between African-American women and those of other racial demographics, paying particular attention to environmental factors that lead to the development of aggressive breast cancer. Dr. Hoskins also strives to understand the ethical psychosocial and behavioral issues in personalized medicine and cancer risk prediction for minority women. Hoskins is board certified in internal medicine with a subspecialty in medical oncology. He is associate professor of medicine in the UIC College of Medicine and a fellow in UIC's Institute for Health Research and Policy. If you would all join me in welcoming Dr. Hoskins. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for this invitation. And thanks to everybody for coming out today. So I'm going to talk about, um, as the slide says, is this on? precision medicine as it relates to uh, cancer genetic risk assessment and health disparities. So let me figure all this out here. All right, next, going that way. This should not be difficult. Oh, there we go. No disclosure. Okay. Okay, so to get us started, you know, we hear the, the term precision medicine thrown around a lot. So what exactly are we talking about? And you can get lots of different definitions if you Google this. This is one that I really like because it's really simple and it's, it's from probably one of the leading experts in the whole movement, Francis Collins. And Dr. Collins basically says that we can call any, any disease screening, prevention, or treatment strategy that takes individual variability into account as a form of precision medicine. So as I highlighted there, I think the key to this definition is that, is that those two words, individual variability. Um, so that's, if you remember nothing else about precision medicine, I think that's, that's really the key to it. Now, this is not a particularly new concept in medicine, right? When we do a blood transfusion, we don't just give any old unit of blood to somebody, right? We do blood typing and we give type matched blood. So the idea of precision medicine certainly is not new. It's been around for at least as long as blood typing and we can probably think hard and come up with some other examples as well. What has changed and why we're hearing so much about it these days, though, is we have dramatically increased opportunities to now start to practice a precision medicine approach. And, and we've gone far beyond just simple blood typing um, in the areas that we can apply this, this individual variability. Um, and really, it's, the, it's what we call the post-genomic era, era that we're in now that really has had this explosion of opportunity in precision medicine. And, and why is that? Well, there's several reasons. Um, Big among them are the powerful new, you hear about people talk about omics technology. So start off with genomics, which is really characterizing the human genome, but now we have proteomics, which are approaches that allow us to more powerfully look at all the proteins, for example, in the blood, as an example. We talk about lipidomics, looking at all the lipids. We, we talk about epigenetics. So we now have technology we didn't have even a decade ago where we can do these large-scale evaluations of a variety of biomarkers um, that really have opened this opportunity for, for precision medicine. Importantly, not only do we have the technology to now to interrogate someone's blood, or in our case it's tumors, for all these various things, whether it's genes or proteins and all, but we, 
importantly, we now have very large databases that have kind of collated what is normal. Because, of course, if you're trying to determine someone's variability, we need to know what's normal and what's abnormal. And in populations where, there's, where we have heterogeneous populations, where we, you know, we're not all genetically identical, we need to have this, this large catalog of, of, of normal. And so, for example, the, the uh, sequencing the human genome was really the first big step in that, where we now have the, you know, the reference genome. And that's now a database, and that's a data resource. And again, things like that really make this possible. So you have to be able to not only have technology to evaluate a patient, but you need to know, compare them, what should that be, or what is the normal state, and where do they vary. Um, as you might imagine, the computational requirements to be able to do this, if we're just talking genes, for example, you know, 20,000 genes, but thousands of nucleotides in these genes. So to be able to search through every gene, every nucleotide, um, you know, in anything short of, you know, days, um, takes really remarkable computational power, both computer-wise, but also development of techniques. So there's been this just an explosion of computational approaches to be able to analyze all this data, which again, the amounts we're talking about are far exceeding the types of data quantities we used to have to deal with in the past. Um, and then from a cancer standpoint, we also have increasingly large number of what we might call targeted agents or drugs that can actually be used when we find a particular target in an individual patient. So these, are, I think, are really the things that have sort of opened the door to this precision medicine explosion, uh, as I'm going to talk about it in, in cancer for sure, but beyond cancer uh, as well. Now, so kind of focusing down on cancer care now. So where might we apply a precision medicine approach or that idea of individual patient variability? How might we apply that uh, when we're talking about cancer care? And there's several ways. Um, so we've gotten much better at using this type of information, genomic information and other information, to be able to estimate prognosis uh, for a patient with a new diagnosis. Of course, the prognosis is key because that then helps guide the therapy decision. So we've gotten dramatically better using nearly every type of cancer, um, using this type of information to, to estimate prognosis. We now can begin to not only estimate prognosis, but we want to know what treatments are likely to work. Uh, if, if a particular treatment is not likely to work, we want to know that rather than expose the patient to something ineffective and potentially toxic. So we've developed now many biomarkers of response to standard therapies that we can use to tailor treatments, avoid toxic treatments that are not likely to work in a particular patient, um, uh, and spare them the, the toxicity for un unnecessary gain. Um, beyond that, um, we're now to the point where we not only try to identify who will respond to standard treatments, but are there particular targets that maybe aren't very common in general, but a particular patient has in their tumor, for example, called a driver mutation. So we now know that many the tumors, uh, many people have a, a mutation or what we call driver gene in their cancer that maybe only 1% or 2% of patients with that cancer have. So it's not very common, but when it's present, it represents a significant vulnerability in that cancer that we can target therapeutically. So we don't want to treat 99 patients for it when only one has it. So this allows us to find the, the targeted therapy for the one or two patients who might have that particular uh, uh, vulnerability. And now we talk about pharmacogenomics, where we can now begin to better predict who's likely to have side effects um, and how do we individualize dosing of, of medicines based on individual ability to metabolize and all that. So, so I think when most people, certainly in the oncology world, talk about precision medicine and cancer, these are the things that they typically think about related to therapy of an established cancer. And, and those are obviously very important. But there's another area um, that a lot of our work involves, and that is to now develop uh, ways to predict risk of getting cancer in the first place. So the first four bullet points were treatment once a cancer is diagnosed. 
but can we apply the same ideas to the whole idea of screening and prevention, and can we begin to personalize or tailor screening and prevention using these precision medicine approach to now begin to get much more precise estimates of how likely is a person to develop a disease in the first place. Um, so that's really what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to focus on, really, I'm going to ignore all the other four. Uh, that'll have to be a talk for another day. And we're going to talk about how might we apply precision medicine approaches to identifying individual cancer risk, and then to use that information now in a way to uh, tailor pre uh, prevention and treatment. And then the next step, of course, is how does that relate to health disparities? So if you think about the sort of the traditional approach that we've taken from the population health standpoint in terms of cancer prevention and disease, it's basically been a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. So whether it's mammography screening you know, in women, whether it's colonoscopy screening for colon cancer for all of us, up until very recently, the, the approach has really been an age-based criteria. You reach a certain age, and now, happy birthday, you start having your colonoscopies. Um, well, again, whether it's mammograms, colonoscopies, pap smears, what have you, it was an age-based paradigm. Um, and so we basically treated everybody in the population the same. But we know that any, any disease condition in the population, actually the actual risk for any person is going to vary. We don't all have the same risk. We kind of, we see this mass of people who are all the same. But in reality, oh, sorry, it's a lot more like this. And so we know that there's a large group of people whose risk is about the same as the general population risk overall. So we might call it the average risk of the general population risk. Now I'm going to focus, by the way, really on breast cancer for the rest of the day. Everything I say you could really translate to colon cancer or a variety of other situations. I'm going to use breast cancer as sort of a case study of this. So I'm only going to talk about that, but literally the principles apply really uh, to several different common adult cancers. So we know that there's a large group of people who have general or average risk. So we, you hear that statistic, one in, one in eight American women are going to get breast cancer. So that's about 12%. Okay, that's a population average, but as any, any average, that's made up of a lots of individuals that are quite different from the average. So we know there's a, there's a, a smaller group, maybe 15, 20% of women, who have some family history of breast cancer. And that alone is going to raise their risk a little bit. We know there's even a smaller group who have very impressive family histories, multiple cases of breast cancer, often at very young ages, three, four, five relatives, which is different than you know, one or two relatives. And we know there's an even smaller group who actually have an identifiable hereditary syndrome. When we do genetic testing, we actually find a gene causing them to get cancer and causing all the cancer in the family. So the idea is that there are these different groups. Um, there's the general population, there's sort of a medium increased risk, and there's these even very high risk groups. And what's appropriate for screening and prevention in one group it may be totally inappropriate for another group. So the question is, how do we start to think about screening and prevention in breast cancer now along this paradigm, which is a risk-based paradigm, as opposed to just a simple age-based paradigm? So how do we go from that other screen to this? Now, I want to talk a little bit before I get into some of the details, just a little bit of background of breast cancer genetics, just to kind of put the context for us. So um, a lot of you probably heard about the breast cancer genes, the BRCA1 and 2 genes. So Angelina Jolie kind of brought all this to the fore several years back when she had prophylactic mastectomies and that of course, she's a BRCA1 mutation carrier, um, so that got a lot of public interest in that. So I'm sure many of you have heard about the so-called breast cancer genes, and generally people are referring to the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes. Now, and they're, they're really, from a breast cancer kind of this risk stratification, they're the one thing we have to make sure we never miss. Um, and why is that? Why are they so important? Well, uh, women who are born with a mutation in one of the BRCA genes, BRCA1 or 2, have an incredibly high chance of getting breast cancer. 
uh, between 50 and 85 percent chance they're going to get breast cancer in their lifetime. Again, compared to the average population, which says 10 to 12. So this is a, you know eight eightfold increase. If that's not bad enough, about half of them are going to get a second breast cancer in the opposite breast over 20 or so years after the first breast cancer, and about a third of them are going to get ovarian cancer. And unlike breast cancer, where we're pretty good at early detection and cure, we certainly are not good at that with ovarian cancer. So the ovarian cancer one, in many ways from a mortality standpoint, becomes an even bigger issue, frankly. Turns out, by the way, men are not totally spared. They certainly don't bear the brunt that women do with these genes. Uh, but in BRCA2 in particular, men get breast cancer. Uh, also, both of them increase prostate cancer risk quite a bit and pancreas a bit as well. But we're going to again focus today really on, on women because of that breast cancer issue. Just to kind of quickly remind everyone some of their basic genetics and how do genes, in particular cancer genes, how do they get inherited because that has big implication for family as we talk about family history and all that. So breast cancer genes and, and almost all of the cancer genes are what, are called, what we call autosomal dominant inheritance, um, meaning that either parent can transmit a mutation in a cancer susceptibility gene. So moms and dads can equally pass on these genes. And so that's, we hear all the time in our clinic people say, well, you know, there's breast cancer in my dad's family, but, you know, that doesn't, that's okay, it doesn't matter, it's not my mom, like, whoa, 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 do, do, do. And we hear physicians telling us that. Um, and so these are auto, on the autosomes, the non-sex chromosomes. So that means that the gender of the parent who carries the mutation is irrelevant um, because these are not sex-linked genes. So moms and dads can equally pass on susceptibility to breast cancer and ovarian cancer. We know that um, the chance of any child of a mutation carrier getting the gene is 50-50, flip a coin. So every time a child's born, 50-50 chance the child gets the mutation in the gene or that they, they don't. And we know that both sons and daughters can equally inherit. So sex or gender is totally irrelevant to who passes it on and to who gets it. Now the difference though is if you get the mutation, your chance of getting a cancer. Like we said in that earlier slide, for BRCA genes, the, what we call the penetrance, the likelihood that if you get the gene, you get the cancer, is much higher in women. But men have the same chance of getting the gene, they just don't get cancer as often, and they have the same likelihood of passing it on to their children. So men and women matter equally on both the parent and child side of things. And again, essentially every cancer gene is like this. How common are the BRCA genes in the population? Well, in the general population, we think about one in 400 individuals carry a mutation in one of the BRCA genes, which may not seem like a lot, but you start doing the math and what that ends up being in our population, um, you know, that, that ends up being actually not so rare. But there are certain situations where the chances are much higher. So it turns out that folks who have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry have a tenfold higher chance. So about 2% of the Ashkenazi population um, carries a BRCA mutation. If we start looking at people with breast cancer, um, certainly the risk goes up. And so one of the key features that I'm trying to point out with this is that there are features that clue us in that, that a genetic syndrome is more likely. So young age is a big one. Hereditary cancers tend to come out at younger ages than the same type of cancer that's not hereditary. So when we see women in their 30s and their 40s, much more likely it's due to a BRCA or a gene like that. Um, the more breast cancer in the family, the more likely. We, male breast cancer, otherwise very rare. I told you a couple slides back that BRCA2 um, causes male breast cancer, so when we see male breast cancer, the red flag goes up, a possibility. Um, I talked about ovarian cancer being a part of it, so when we see both breast and ovary in the same family, the odds go up, and if we see one person, one woman who's had both of those cancers, the vast majority of the time she's going to be a BRCA carrier. So just to kind of give you a little background, these are the kinds of things we start thinking about as we look at family histories to decide to say, now who's got one of those lower risk family histories? but who's someone whose family history makes us worry a little more as we start to think about that population stratification we talked about. 
this is just to point out the fact that the BRCA genes are not the only genes that cause breast cancer. This is a few years out of date, but this is a, a slide depicting of all the cases we believe are familial or hereditary in terms of breast cancer, 15, maybe 20% are due to the BRCA genes. There are some other genes that are less common, but are also now very important that together make up another seven to 10%. So probably the genes we know about today probably explain about a quarter, 25, maybe 30% of the hereditary causes of breast cancer. So there are lots of genes out there um, that can cause breast cancer. Um, and if we, one of the important caveats that I'll talk about in a second here is a negative gene test doesn't necessarily mean it's not genetic. It means it's not one of these genes that we know about. So how do we start to kind of clinically address this? And cancer genetic counseling really is the key thing. I'm going to talk a lot about that a little bit as we start talking about disparities. Um, genetic counseling is really the key step when we see someone who's got a family history that we worry about to start to figure out should we be doing genetic testing? Because now we have genetic tests that are available. The prices come down dramatically. Back uh, when I started doing this 20 years ago, it cost about $6,000 to test just the BRCA1 and 2 genes. Today, we, because of next generation sequencing advances, which have dramatically dropped the cost, we now do what are called panel tests, where we look at all those genes up there and even more, and we can do that for half the price that we used to look at as one or two. So now we typically will look at 20, 30 you know, genes at one time. Um, that's gotten just dramatically cheaper. So um, genetic counseling, though, the idea is to uh, really evaluate the pedigree and determine is it likely one of these genes might be the culprit, and if so, order genetic testing and interpret the testing. And then the point of that, of course, is to be able to personalize or individualize prevention and screening. So once we know someone's risk is dramatically high, that's going to change how we manage them. So if, the if they test positive for a mutation, um, then that sort of leads us down one path, and we'll talk a little more about that in a second. But the important point, as I mentioned earlier, is if you test negative, that doesn't mean it's not genetic. It mean, because as this slide shows, over half of the familial breast cancer is not due to these genes. And we can't test for the genes we haven't found yet. So when someone has a negative gene test, we still have to look at their family history and use that to guide us. And there are now computer models called empiric risk models where we can actually calculate out a woman's chance of getting breast cancer when they test negative based on the details of the family history. We can give them a number. We can say, based on your family history, you've got a 27% chance you're going to get breast cancer, for example. So how do we kind of put that together in a clinical situation? So we think about this risk spectrum. And, and again, we talked about the general population risk being sort of that, you know, 10, 12%. And so what this slide is, is attempting to depict is the fact that not only do we want to sort of place a person on this risk scale, but we want to then tailor what we do. So what, how do we do things differently? So if, someone, if a woman has no risk factors, that'll often put them in this general population risk category, and we recommend standard screening. Depending on which guidelines you follow these days with mammography, you started at 50 or 45 or 40. We won't get into all that. But you follow the general population level screening guidelines. And we talk about lifestyle, healthy lifestyle, and all that. But we start adding other risk factors, like certain reproductive risk factors, certain types of benign breast disease called atypical hyperplasia, some amount of family history. Now the risk starts going up, and we're getting in that 20 25%. And now we start talking about, in some cases, giving medicine, uh, pharmacologic risk reduction. There are medications that we can actually give that will cut the risk by a third to a half. Uh, we talk about enhanced screening. So we might start mammograms at a younger age than we would normally. In some cases, we add an MRI scan to their mammogram once a year because that's been shown to be much better. And we, do, as I said, we talk about genetic counseling and genetic testing. And if we do that and we have a true hereditary <coughs> breast cancer syndrome where we find a mutation in the BRCA or one of the other genes, we might even be talking about preventive surgeries, prophylactic mastectomies where we remove the breast to prevent cancer development, 
the Angelina Jolie approach, uh, where we take the ovaries out, et cetera. So the point of this slide is to say that while the, the risk varies across the population, how we might manage a woman's breast cancer risk also varies, and to know what's the appropriate intervention, we need to know where they fall on that spectrum. Yeah? Just out of curiosity, what are some of the medications that you can get? Uh, tamoxifen is a common one. So several medications that block the lower estrogen that we've used for a long time to treat breast cancer. We now know you can give to women who never had breast cancer, you can cut their risk by about a third to a half. But they have side effects, of course, as does everything. So we don't want to give them to everybody. We want to make sure that the risk of breast cancer is high enough to justify those side effects and that the benefit outweighs the risk. But again, it all depends on, so the FDA approvals are based on doing those computer empiric models I was telling you about. There's actual numeric risk level you've got to fall above in order to qualify. So, kind of back to where we started. So this is how people actually present, right? We don't, people don't come to us and, you know, within standing in circles and, and us knowing. So how do we go from this, which is sort of how, just, you know, life happens and people, people exist, how do we go from that to this in, in real life? And so the way we, we can think about doing that is what we call systematic cancer genetic risk assessment. So developing a systematic approach to be able to stratify people, and again, this could apply to colon cancer, several other things, but we'll talk about breast. So, and, and of course, we want to be doing this before someone has a cancer diagnosis. So, where, so that can't happen in an oncologist's office, which is what I do. That means we need to get it into primary care. So how do we then start thinking about moving this process to identify individual level of risk in a primary care environment? And therein lies the challenge, and that's really what I'm going to talk about really for the rest of the, of the time. Now, I'm going to kind of do a hard right turn here. So, what does all this have to do with health disparities? I, that was kind of my title. I, I mentioned health disparities, so how are these related? Well, this is a graph of breast cancer mortality in our population over the last several decades. And so, the red bar, this is mortality, deaths per 100,000 population in our country. So, the red line is for basically non-Hispanic, white, European ancestry women. The black curve is for African Americans. I want to point out a couple of things. So number one, before about you know, mid-19, late 1980s, those curves were superimposable, right? They were the same. The mortality rate was about the same until the mid to late 1980s. And then, I had it backwards, sorry, blue is white, red is African American. Um, and then in the mid to late 80s, we see the mortality rate in white women starts to drop dramatically. Whereas in black women, it actually kind of was up a little bit it's now starting to come down, but that splay in the curves has never come back together. So that's when we talk about a mortality disparity, that's what we're talking about. So why is that? Why was there no difference in mortality up until the mid to late 1980s, and why is there one now? And so the question we all have to ask is, what happened, right? What happened in the mid-1980s that might have brought this about? And so I'll, I'll tell you, um, two things really happened then. One was mammography screening became widespread. And you guys are all too young to remember this, but. Um, Betty Ford got a breast cancer diagnosis in the, the mid-70s, early 80s. That brought a lot of attention. About this time, she was the, vice, or the president's wife, um, for Gerald Ford's wife, Betty Ford. Um, dating myself here. <laughs> um, about that time, several large randomized trials showing that mammography decreased mortality in breast cancer were published. And so national health policy guidelines started incorporating annual mammograms, which today we think of, we don't even give it probably, you know, second thought. But that was not done back in the 70s and, and 80s and beyond and, and earlier. That was a new public health initiative, really, that got going in the mid, mid to late 80s. That was one thing that came about. Second thing that came about was treatment got better. 
Um, that's when we started using medicines in addition to surgery and radiation to treat breast cancer. And so we saw that women who had a breast cancer diagnosis more likely to be cured. So two medical advances happened right about that time. Screening became standard of care, or should have been, and treatment changed. And I'll cut to the chase and tell you that you can look at similar curves for HIV, for any other cancer, for heart disease, and what you see is that health disparities emerge in the wake of medical advances. When you can't do much about a problem, your access to not much doesn't make a difference, right? It's when we can start to do things and now unequal access or unequal, you know, um, unequal treatments start to show because those who can't get the treatments, they start to do worse. So a key theme here is that health disparities are the in one sense, they're the result of advances in medical care. And again, probably the most striking example is HIV. If you look at the HIV data, it's like all, when, when uh, AZT, the first antiretroviral drug came out, all of a sudden, boom, mortality dropped, just boom, like a stone for white people. But it did not do that for other underserved racial groups. And that's probably the most dramatic example, but again, you can see it in cancer and heart disease and whatever you want. So now kind of back to our question, what are we talking about today? Precision medicine. So what's the next big advance in healthcare, or at least one of the big ones? Of course, the precision medicine you know, era is on us, and that's obviously one of the big new advances. And so it doesn't really take me to tell you that you know, what is likely to happen. If we just kind of carry on as we are, what's probably going to happen? Do we think that that curve is going to come together as we get better and better medical care? No, because again, that's when things get worse when medical care, yes? Sorry, just for the graph, what does the Hispanic curve look like? The it's sort of in between. It's not as bad as African American, okay. um, so. It's because it, it says that it's including Hispanic, white, and black, so just Yeah, if you split it out, good point. Yeah, if you just look non-Hispanic, white. So the most striking is non-Hispanic, white versus African American. So it turns out, I'm, I'm obviously simplifying things here a bit for time, but there's this complex interaction between race and socioeconomic status. And so there's been a lot of debate about is it, is it race per se or is it socioeconomic? It's probably both. Um, so I'm not going to get into all the biology, but from a, from a breast cancer disparity standpoint, it's bad to be poor, it's bad to be black, and it's really bad to be poor and black. That's like the worst possible combination for a variety of reasons that have to do with all kinds of things. Um, so it's both, there's a racial component probably, but there's also clearly a socioeconomic component, which Leads me to my next slide, actually, in a second. So. Um, just in case anybody thinks that Chicago is progressive and, and you know, doing better than national, those were national, that curve was national. This is Chicago. Um, so the graph on the, or the map on the left is, is a neighborhood map, Chicago neighborhoods, and by percentage of African Americans residing in the neighborhood, by quartiles. So the lightest color have the, low, uh, the lowest quartile of African American residents all the way up to the, the largest. The map on your right, the pink map, is breast cancer mortality. And I won't belabor the point, but you get the idea. You can, you know, with a few exceptions, you can overlay, overlay those laps, oh, maps. So clearly the higher the proportion of African-American residents in a neighborhood, the higher the breast cancer mortality in that neighborhood. And there are very few exceptions in, in the map. And again, this is not unique to breast cancer. Um, we could show the same after prostate for probably lung for colon. So the point being that breast cancer mortality uh, disparities in Chicago was a huge problem. In fact, it was worse than the national average until fairly recently. So. Uh, when I started working in this area, you know, 10 years ago or more, we, I think we, the, right now the national rate is it's about 40% higher mortality for black women nationally. At the time, when, the, when these maps were, were coming out, it was about 60 to 70% higher in Chicago. So we were worse than the national average. And of course, 
That's because Chicago is dramatically segregated. Again, you can just see it pretty obviously on this map. So, <clears throat> a skeptic's view of precision medicine and health disparities. And this is from an article that came out a couple years ago in the New England Journal, which I, I, I just read it because it says it more perfectly than I could say it. The enthusiasm for this initiative, meaning precision medicine, derives from the assumption that precision medicine will contribute to clinical practice and thereby advance the health of public. But we suggest, however, that this enthusiasm is premature. Our skepticism about what precision medicine has to offer is predicated on a reading of the evidence regarding social determinants of population health. And I'll talk more about that in a second. So what they're saying is that improvements in clinical practice, medical advances, do not equal improvement in the health of our population. And that's, um, that's just an empiric fact, really. There's no debate about that. I would like to take a slightly less skeptical view, um, not dramatically less skeptical. So my, my philosophy is that precision medicine approach to cancer care has the potential to actually mitigate or eliminate health disparities because we have the power now to do things we couldn't do. But past experience shows that it's more likely to actually exacerbate things. So again, the current sort of inertia and the current way things are, if we continue on the way we've always done things, we can expect those disparity curves will get worse uh, as we get more and more precision medicine. So now the rest of my talk is, okay, is that, you know, is there any evidence that that's going to happen? And if so, how do we start to try to reverse that trend? And what might we do to be proactive? Shame on us if in 20 years we're having this talk and we saw that those curves have gotten worse, because now we know what's going to happen if we don't act. All right, this is a, believe it or not, a simplified version of a pretty complex uh, diagram, and, and a, but a com very complex topic. And so one of the keys to understanding health disparities is what we call social determinants of health. And basically, that, what that means is that we, there's, of course, a social gradient in our society and every society, right? There are people on the top and there are people on the bottom. From any way you want to think about social capital, whether it's economic, you know, income, whether it's access to people with, with power, whether it's access to services, anything you can think of, we have a gradient in our society, of course. Um, and race is part of that, but it's not just about race. And you see the same thing in, in other societies where there's less racial uh, segregation. So, for example, England has a similar thing. Anywhere you look, there's going to be a socioeconomic gradient at least. And social determinants of health, basically, um, the theory, which has been borne out over and over again, is that there are multiple levels of, of influences that happen that are driven by social forces. Um, and so in that kind of middle column there, so what you might call the fundamental causes are really related to those high-level things, whether it's policy-level things, whether our health policy is that, you know, you get free education no matter what your income or your employment of your parents, but your health is dependent. Your health insurance is dependent on your on your insurance, your employability, right? Think about if we ever did for our education system what we do for our health system. If you you got to go to school based on you know your job or where your parents worked, that's how we that's how we do our health care, right? It's really based for the most part on the employment status of you, your family members. There's no logical reason for that. There's a whole interesting history that has nothing to do with it being a good idea, but that's how our system's set up. So that's a system level, societal level thing that has dramatic effects. Um, there are more individual de policy decisions that get made. What gets funded by Medicaid, you know, what, where funding goes, all that has trickled down. So that's the fundamental root causes. But, and I don't quite know how to show it, but these levels also interact. So what happens at the top trickles down. So for example, if we think about like in the individual level, Maybe we have a problem with adherence to mammography. Let's say you know underserved women don't get their mammograms as much, even if they're even if they're ordered. Well, 
there are things that happen at the societal level that influence. So for example, there's obviously a huge history of racial discrimination in healthcare. The Tuskegee Institute um, experiment you might have heard about where men were, you know, who had syphilis were not treated. Um, so there's enormous medical mistrust in certain communities that's a result of some of these social things in the history. Or we know that clearly there's, there's unequal education, right? Our, our education is not equal across the social economic spectrum. So when we see health literacy problems as an individual level, that's being influenced by things up high. So my point here, and we could spend the whole hour just talking about what happens at all these levels, but the point is that they all come together in, in this tangled web that we call the social determinants of health, where they, the final outcome is these, is these disparate outcomes in whatever health measure you want to look at. Um, so we'll talk, so point, point number two is that if one wants to start thinking about how do you address that, it doesn't take a genius to know that if you just focus on you know, getting women to know how important mammograms are, there's way more to it than that, right? So that might be one level and even one sub part of one level, but there are all these other levels. Now, of course, you can't do everything at once, and so one has to be strategic about where do you apply things, but point being, when you're addressing health disparities, you really have to start thinking multi-level and realizing that what's happening at one level is influencing things happening at another level. The individual is being influenced by their, their immediate community. If there is no, there's not a clinic within walking distance and you don't have a car, and you gotta take three buses to get to your clinic, how likely is that you're gonna get the kind of health care that, you know, you, that you need? So again, that's a societal thing. That's because of you know, how we set up our transportation system. So all of that is gonna have a big influence. So we can't forget all that as we think about this. Same time, it's easy to get overwhelmed when you try to do it, and of course you can't address, address everything at once. Okay, um, so I've been saying, I've been trying to make the case that if we continue as we have, it's likely there will be disparities in precision medicine, just like there were in screening and all that. Is there any evidence that that's actually true? And there, I'm just gonna show you two studies real quickly just to make my point. We, again, I could spend a whole hour showing you study after study. The answer is yes, there's a ton of data showing that the exact same thing is happening in breast cancer relative to precision medicine, that happened with mammography and, that, and, and treatment and all that 20 years ago. So this is just one study. Um, this is now women who have a personal history of breast cancer. Um, it was a population-based study of over 3,000 women. Cut into the chase, what they found was that black women were 46% less likely to have genetic testing performed than white women, despite having, even when they adjusted for their chance of having a mutation and all the other relevant things, equalizing everything else, about half is likely to have genetic testing. When they dug into it more, about half of that was because the doctor never recommended it, and about half of it was because it was recommended but women didn't do it. So again, we're seeing multi-level multi influences there. Some of it is at a system level. Individual doctors who might have implicit bias, or they might have other reasons that they're not recommending it, even when it's medically indicated for black women versus they were for white women. But there's also an individual patient level factor as well because when it was recommended, it was less often acted upon. And so, um, again, thinking multi-level here. This, yeah? Uh, is that, like, is genetic testing usually covered by insurance or like Medicare Medicaid programs? Depends on where you live. Um, so it's a complex answer. So commercial insurance is yes. Uh -huh. Medicaid, state dependent. So with the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicaid that came, States that chose to take the extra federal money had to then include BRCA testing for Medicaid patients, but not all states ex decided to expand Medicaid access. So it depends on where you live. 
again, thinking societal things there as you are. So in Illinois, we're fortunate that Illinois was a Medicaid expansion state, um, and so we expanded Medicare, Medicaid criteria in terms of who is eligible, and that meant we had to then make testing available to all Medicaid patients. Um, Quick question. Yeah. That's just for it varies by disease. So again, there, there's political issues. There was much better breast cancer, cancer advocacy back in the day. So breast cancer has a little bit of a privileged status in terms of that. So for example, Illinois Medicaid does not pay for colon cancer genetic screening, but it does for breast cancer. So again, it's, it's all this, again, that societal level, there's all these things that are going into that. But did you say like genetic testing can like now test a lot of these genes? Oh yeah, it can be done. If you have private insurance, you can get it paid for. If you have Medicaid, in Illinois anyway, and in most states, and you have hereditary colon cancer risk, you don't get it paid for. So you gotta find a way to get it. You pay for it or not get it. But obviously, there is some of that inequity that we've been talking about. So if, you're, if you have private insurance because you have a, a job that provides insurance, you're golden. Um, you can get 100 genes tested and you'll pay nothing. But if you have Medicaid and you happen to have a, and I, there are colon cancer syndromes that are just as bad as the breast cancer I talked about, 80% chance of getting colon cancer just as big of a problem. But uh, if you have Medicaid in Illinois, you're out of luck because you're not gonna get tested. Now again, lots of things are, you know, there are charity care and there are things, but the point is it's so much more effort. So if you can't just go to your doctor and have more of that test, how likely are you to get it? If you've gotta go through all kinds of hoops, submit your income, submit your tax, all this stuff to prove, again, it's just such a barrier to getting it done. And it's like genetic counseling um, dependent on like primary or medicine in general, or is it kind of in the, like it's an own independent thing? Um, so that's part of the challenge as well from the healthcare system standpoint. So the way we're set up in our healthcare system, you need a referral for most things, because that's considered specialty level care. So if you're in this healthcare system, especially if you have an HMO and you can't go any place unless your provider you know, refers you, and if your provider for whatever reason doesn't think you need it or whatever, you're stuck. So again, there's these system level things. Now it varies, so part of the answer is there's not one answer to that. It, um, so genetic counseling is its own specialty. There are genetic counselors, and centers like this have cancer, we have cancer genetic counselors. But most clinics you know, out in the community, certainly primary care clinics, don't have genetic trained specialists. This is a highly specialized area. It's changing literally every week or every month. Um, so for current model is you have to be sent here from wherever you get your care. Um, we'll talk about that actually because, it, um, so the question is can we kind of, can we bring it to the people instead of making the people come here? So that's one of the strategies that we think about those multi-level barriers. How do we change that or how do we get over that barrier of having to send people to a, a referral center? Anyway, um, so point being that you see the exact same thing if you look at women. So the first data was women who have breast cancer. We do genetic testing in many women who've already had cancer. There are criteria for when they should get testing. That was showing women who'd had a diagnosis of cancer but weren't getting the genetic counseling they needed. Same thing if you have a family history but don't have a personal, same idea, and it's even worse there. So point being, my point in this slide is there's ample evidence that what we were worried was gonna happen, in fact, clearly is happening. Uh, in terms of a disparity in access to precision medicine and cancer genetic care is clearly here. All right. So, um, so, a big part of this though was what we talked about, failure of healthcare providers to actually recommend it. And I'm not gonna go into all the details, but in all the studies, at least half of the disparity was explained by the doctor didn't recommend it for black women, but they did for white women who had exactly the same chance of having mutation. They're, they met the same criteria, but they weren't referred. Now there's almost no data on why that is. Why do providers not refer black women for counseling? There's literally no data on that. So um, it's gonna be hard to fix it until we figure out what's going on there. There's lots of theories. So 
But one way to do it is, as you were saying, well, can we just get around that barrier rather than trying to go over it? Maybe we can figure out a system where we don't need a primary care doctor to refer or recommend a woman. So that's one of the things that we'll talk a little bit about. Um, so um, just real quick, so, why, so now why focus on this as a way to address breast cancer disparities in general? Well, there's lots of good reasons. I won't read them, you can read them. But again, bottom line is if we don't look at this, we know what's gonna happen, right? Because this will all trickle down. So if, we're, if, if more advantaged women are getting now high-risk screening with MRIs so we can find their cancer when they're tiny, that's gonna have a dramatic benefit on breast cancer mortality in that population. We're getting them out when they're tiny or we're giving them prevention they're not getting in the first place. We're doing prophylactic surgeries. We know in 10 years what's gonna happen in the advantaged population, breast cancer mortality is gonna go down a lot because of all this. But we can expect what's gonna not happen in disadvantaged populations if we don't figure out how to address this. Okay, at a very simple level, so what would it take to now take this population health approach like we do with mammograms where there's a population approach and we don't just rely on a doctor thinking about ordering it, right? But it's part of the system. It's part of the annual visit. What would it take to do something like that for this genetic risk assessment? Because that would be one way around it. Have that be incorporated much like a pap smear or ordering a mammogram. So how might one do that? And so a lot of work we've done has been trying to figure out how might you do that in under-resourced under clinics that serve these underprivileged patients. So in very simple terms, you've got to do three things, right? You have to have some way of doing a screening quickly in a clinical setting, for example, or at a mammography center to know who should be referred for genetic counseling. You have to have a genetic specialist you can send them to that they can go to. Um, and again, there's all the issues we talked about with that. The often, someone's phone is going off here. Not mine. Um, the ignored arrows. How do you get people from point A to point B? And so a lot of work goes on these first on the outer boxes, but one thing I want to talk a little bit about is it's not a simple thing to actually have people who are screened, recommended, and actually go where they need to go. So point being one is I think about all those, and now think kind of a matrix. Think of all those, and then the multi-level barriers we talked about that affect each one of those steps. So you can start to see it gets a bit, a bit daunting to think about that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some work we did to kind of address this. So how might we now in a primary care setting start to identify women who have hereditary risk who should be referred for genetic counseling? So we've been working on this for a while. We developed this tool. Um, I won't go into details, it's an iPad-based thing. It was a, uh, it's called a pedigree assessment tool that would very quickly allow a primary care, in a primary care setting, to identify women who met a cri national criteria, their criteria for who should be referred um, for genetic counseling. Um, and so we said, well, can we now actually incorporate this as part of the annual well visit? Much like a pap smear is done, can we do this genetic risk assessment? And would that do, get a better job of getting women who need this counseling actually having their doctor recommend it and actually having them go. Um, this is a little, so we did a big study on that. We did a little, little warm-up. We want to know, do women actually want this information? If they don't even want the information, it's probably pointless. And so this is a little study we did in a, it's called a federally qualified health center. 99% uh, uh, minority, underserved minority in women. And when they came for their annual visit, we had a little survey we invited them to do. And the, what, the point I want to make is that about 90% of the women wanted individualized risk information. They wanted this kind of information. Those who said no, when we dug down, it was basically because they were in a hurry that day and they just didn't have time. So it, it wasn't that they didn't want to know it, but they didn't want to take the time to sit and talk about it. All right, so uh, the point here is there is a huge interest in this, which has been one of the criticisms that because of health literacy, maybe women didn't even want to know about this. So that we then did a, uh, I'm gonna skip all this. Okay, so we did a study, and it's a little complicated, and I'll try to simplify a little bit. So we did this study um, a few years back in a, again, in a clinic that cares for 100% underserved minority women, basically. Um, 
And so we started with what we call usual care phase, where we just went to the, all the doctors in this clinic and said, okay, we did a kind of a lecture like this where we talked about all this and we showed them how do you, how do you actually identify who has a family history you should send. And we did an hour-long lecture, an hour and a half to teach them all that. And we said, you can send your women to our high-risk clinic here at UIC for free. We got a, a grant from the National Cancer Institute to do this. Free clinic. All, and here's how you do it. Go to it. Anybody who you find who has genetic risk, just, you know, we had a simple way and they can send them. We did that for a year. Um, then we went back to the doctor and said, okay, now we're going to do this screening for you. And so when your patient's checking for an annual visit or you see a new patient as part of the check-in process, we're going to have your staff use this iPad tool we developed. It takes about two minutes to do it. And you're going to get a printout. Every new woman, every, new, or every annual visit and every new patient is going to tell you, does this woman's family history meet criteria for genetic counseling? And other things like should they be having MRIs and, and should they start mammograms younger? They're going to get all that to tell you exactly what to do. And now we're going to see what you do with it. And so we did that for an, another year. And then in the study, all the women who ended up having high risk, we invited to be part of the study. Um, and they did some surveys and we did some chart views and all that. But the key was we did that for 12 months. And so now we had women who'd been seen by the same doctor a year earlier. And now the second time, the second time we now were doing this risk assessment. So now we know who should have been referred last year, right? Because the doctors have been told all about this. So we can see, does us doing it for them increase the likelihood? Because again, thinking about system level things, could a clinic implement this as part of the system, as part of their process, as opposed to making a doc think about it and go to all the trouble? Um, so the question is, well, would this work? And so again, our outcome was referral and attendance at a genetic counseling session here. Are we getting the right women into the counseling? So just to tell you, so we screened about 1,200 women. Um, and you can see up there in the corner, it was about 70% African-American. They're almost the rest were Latina. Very, very disadvantaged group, as you can tell by those numbers up in the corner there. Um, and about a little over 10% of them met national criteria for genetic counseling. So this is not the occasional one. Over 10% of women, and this has been shown in other studies, meet national criteria to see a genetic counselor for breast cancer risk. And of those 149, 112 agreed to be in the study where they would do the survey and let us call them back, and we did a lot of things I won't tell you about today. And of those 112, about half of them had been seen by the same doctor the year before. So some of them were new to the clinic, or some of them hadn't come in for a couple years. So about half of them were seen twice now. So now we could look at these women and say, okay, these are women we know should have been identified last year by their doctor, because we had just told the doctors how to do all this. And now we've done it for them, so we know who they are, and we can look and see how many of these women did their doctors refer on their own versus how many are they referring now that we've done it for them. And any, any guesses? How many of these do you think were referred by their doctors in the year prior to us doing it? I'll tell you, zero. Not a single one. Um, nobody was referred. And it went up to about two-thirds of them referred. Um, the doctors did 64% referral rate once we started doing it. So we're like, whoa, high fives. This is great. This worked terrific. Um, not 100%, but, you know, that was obviously a, a significant improvement. So we were very happy when we saw those numbers. But now we're going to look at all the women, not just those who were seen twice, and say, okay, now there were 112 total who, who met criteria. And of those, how many actually showed up? So now this is looking at all 112. So we have 112 who meet national criteria for seeing a genetic counselor. Of that whole group, a little over half, actually, their doctor referred them. Presumably at that appointment, the doc, because the doctor got the result before he saw the he or she saw the woman. So during the visit, they would talk about it, presumably, and they would say, "I want you to go see this genetic counselor." So, um, but the the money slide or the very last thing, 10% of women actually came. Um, so, obviously, there are 
lots more issues. It's not as simple as just saying, oh, go see these people. Um, so we then said, okay, we feel like maybe we've cracked part of the problem here. We've figured out a way that we do a lot better at getting referrals, but how do we actually get people to go? Um, and so, um, should I have it? Last couple minutes, I'm just going to talk to you about so kind of what are we doing now. So now we're at another level of the of that whole process, right? What are the reasons that these women didn't go? More importantly, how might we motivate them to actually do this? So we've spent several years. Um, so quick conclusion. So again, there was a high level of interest, which was a disconnect. When we asked women, "Do you want to know this?" they all said yes, but then hardly any of them came, which didn't make a lot of sense. And it was a free clinic visit. Um, we found it was feasible to do this in a primary care in a very under-resourced clinic setting. We found that primary care doctors, not surprisingly, were not doing a very good job on their own, but they were pretty good when we helped them with that. Um, but again, as I said, the big problem was patients just were not adhering to that recommendation. There's a lot we could talk about in terms of what the PCPs told us. We did a lot of focus groups with the docs afterwards to understand their thoughts on all this. Um, but a key was that we did exit interviews with all these women. They, so we, we do their screen, they go see the doc, the doc tells them whatever he tells them, he or she. And then on the way out, we take them for 10 minutes and said, hey, and we ask them questions. Now they had literally one minute ago walked out the office door. And 98% of them said, I don't know what this is about. You know, they had just talked to their doctor. I need more information, I don't get this at all. So that's telling us something, right? Even though we expected that doctors were educating patients, explaining what this was, why it's important, clearly that message was not getting through. So there was a, but there's an opportunity there. So women want the information, they're being referred for counseling, they don't see how going for counseling will fulfill their, their need or their desire. So that gives us an opportunity maybe to intervene with some kind of an educational, motivational approach to try to address that, that problem. Um, so now what? So, Again, focusing on this arrow. So how do we get people who we've identified actually into the care? Um, and that may seem obvious that we have to think about that, but honestly, it wasn't very obvious to us. We didn't think about that at the beginning. We said, doctors refer it, problem solved. Not so. Okay, so, um, so I'll just quickly tell you about a little project we're doing. If we have time at the end, I'll show you. We have about a six minute video. If we have time, I'll show you that kind of where this all led and what we learned. So we said, what would it take to motivate a woman in that who's recommended to actually go? What, not only what are the barriers, why are they not going, but more importantly, what would they need to hear to make them want to go? Um, and so we've been working on a project. You know what, this is really complicated and I'm not even gonna go over it, it's too much, not enough time. Skip that, sorry. Okay, so one thing we have to pay attention to is cultural relevance, um, because of course there, there are issues that are, are cultural, culture dependent, and so we can't think what I think is gonna work, is necessarily gonna work for, you know, for another group of people. So it's really important that we think about ways to develop interventions that take into account the cultural needs of the group that we're interested in. And so we have to design our interventions around these principles. Oops. So uh, what we're doing is we created a, a an, we're calling it an educational intervention, but it's really a motivator. Motivational intervention to motivate African-American women who meet criteria for genetic counseling to actually get them to go. So we took women from that study I just told you about who were referred but didn't go. We, we contacted them again and said, hey, would you be willing to come and talk to us? So we did interviews with about 20 women, all had a strong family history of breast cancer, all of them met national criteria for genetic counseling, all of them had a doctor refer them and none of them came to figure out what would have motivated you to actually go. So we did these one-on-one -on -one what we call qualitative interviews just to kind of you know get hour long, ask them all kinds of things to try to understand what, why they didn't go and what would motivate them. We then took about half of those women and we did what we call story circle, where we got them together, kind of like a focus group, but in a focus group, we lead it. We say, you know, we ask specific questions. 
A story circle, it, it changes the power dynamic where you, you basically say to the women in the group, we say, okay, we know you all had breast cancer in your family. Let's go out, just tell us about it. And, and then we're done. And then we hear, because now we want to know what's the lived experience of these women, not when we force them to answer our questions, but what are they actually feeling and what's their lived experience in their community and their family? Because that might inform what we need to start addressing. And that doesn't come out when we do a, a traditional interview survey where we have all these questions and they're forced to answer the questions we want answered rather than getting a chance to tell us what they need to tell us. So we did that with these story circles. It was really, and I, won't, I don't have time to get into all that, but it was eye-opening. I mean, stuff that never came out in, these, in the survey or in the interviews came out clear because now you have 10 women, women and they're sharing stories and talking about their families and they actually want to come back and do it again. So it's like a, this is like a support group. Um, point being, again, the idea is that you have to hear the lived experience of the people who you're trying to, you're trying to impact to, if you're going to really do something that's meaningful to them. So we took all that and then we created a script uh, for this intervention. Um, we then took the script and we then had focus groups of this target audience, different women now, but again, African-American women, family history of breast cancer, we got them in focus groups. We told them our ideas about the artwork, what this thing was going to look like, we read the script. And the original plan was a whiteboard animation, you know, those um, like FedEx, those commercials where you see the hand-drawn whiteboard. So that was the original idea, and I won't tell you why. I'll just tell you, we did not do that. They hated it. I mean, seriously, I thought they were going to start throwing their lunches at me. I mean, when we got to that point in the focus group, like, everybody just went crazy, and they just hated that. And it, which in itself was very interesting, but it was one of the big aha moments for me. Um, and there's lots of reasons, but point being, we have to listen to the people to tell us like what actually resonates and what's not offensive and what's effective. So we totally had to scrap the idea, which was a problem for our budget, let me tell you. Um, so they wanted like real people and real stories. So we went from this totally animated thing to actually a live action thing where now I have to hire this production crew and hire all these actors and like, ah. So it was not a good budget scene, but um, point being, if we had not listened to them, this thing would have been a disaster because I, I, I can't tell you how much they reacted negatively to that idea. So we went back to the drawing board, create this new thing, uh, take it back to the focus groups after we'd done the whole thing and they, and they liked it much better. Um, and so that's kind of the process we go through, this iterative process. So this is just to show you, remember that earlier map I showed you, the breast cancer disparity map? The blue outlines where the women in this study came from. So obviously they're like right in the heart of that breast cancer belt that we've talked about on the south side. Um, I'm just gonna really quickly in the last couple minutes, how much time do I have, like four minutes. Um, I'm just going to highlight what came out of those story circles in those interviews. What, did, what were like the ahas for us? So not surprising, lack of trust, um, poor communication with providers was huge. Um, and again, women had literally just walked out of their doctor's office and telling us like, we don't get this at all. Um, a big thing that we heard a lot was we really want to understand this because I want to make a decision for myself whether I should actually do this, but I can't make a good decision if I don't understand what's even going on here. So they wanted the information so that they could be engaged and make a good decision for themselves, which was very laudable. Um, we found a really big, there's a big idea of this mind-body connection. And why that was relevant was women, a lot of these women just had a mammogram that was normal. So I just had a normal mammogram. I don't want to think about breast cancer because if I start thinking about it, I had a normal mammogram, let's, we don't have to, let's put that away because the more I think about it, you guys are going to make me think about it and that's going to bring it on. So there was a lot of that, maybe it wasn't quite that strong, but clearly this idea of why would I want to dwell on something that we don't want to have happen. We have our mammogram, we move on. Um, fear was probably the single biggest thing that came up over and over and over again. And the reason for that was, one reason was women 
equated all the emotional baggage that came from their loved one getting breast cancer came with this. They didn't separate this from getting a breast cancer diagnosis. They saw this as step one in being told they had breast cancer. So all the fear around breast cancer was transferred to this, which, would, of course, the irony is the point is, is the exact opposite. It's so that doesn't happen to you. But that's totally lost. People didn't get the connection. So anyway, um, that's probably the single biggest thing that came through was the fear issue, which comes into why we did the video the way we did it. And then the big thing was just women not seeing the relevance, having no idea how it was going to help them. So I'm not, I don't have time to go through all this. Um, I think I'm almost out of time. Um, so if you want, I will take the last six minutes and just show you kind of what we ended up with. Anybody who wants to leave, feel free to go. Um, I'll just play it just to give you an idea. And literally everything in this video, almost verbatim, the, the script, the words, the lines, almost all came right from what we were told by these women as well as the, the themes and the content and all that. So it's, it's literally, you know, the women in these studies who really designed this, even though they didn't realize they were. All right, how do I do this? And while I'm teeing up, anybody have any questions about all that? <laughs>